I think that's what people are, are realizing. It's just an alternative source for generating electric power. It's not going to create all the household and consumer goods that oil and gas, particularly oil, is used to make. Anything that's plastic, I think I've seen statistics, it's like 90% of what every person uses or touches every day was created because of crude oil production. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome, I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. And last season on Infrastructure Junkies, we had a wonderful episode on oil and gas and the fossil fuels. Where was it all headed with Tom Forestier? Now, oil and gas is not something that we'd ever featured before on Infrastructure Junkies. And as it turns out, it was one of our most popular episodes of the season. We're not sure whether it was the oil and gas industry, whether it was the topic, or whether it was our lovely guest, but we decided that we should revisit the issue. Because you see, the oil and gas and pipeline industry has at best been ignored and at worst has been under direct attack under more recent American energy policies. You mix this in with a relatively new concept of environmental justice, and those in the industry are left to wonder, W-T-H. We'd ask Tom Forestier to come back on the show, give us the lay of the land, and hopefully make everyone feel a little bit better. Tom is a great friend of ours. He's an eminent domain right-of-way and oil and gas attorney from Winstead PC's Houston office. He's a big man in the industry, and companies come to Tom and companies come to Winstead all the time to ask, is everything going to be okay? And Tom, is everything going to be okay? I think things are going to be great. As it turns out, maybe I was kind of a doomsday guy about a year ago. Um, we're getting reports in from the oil and gas industry from all sectors. And the major oil and gas companies are reporting record-setting profits in 2022. The pipeline companies are holding their own. And the refineries in the downstream sector are doing just fine. And uh, I'm not sure I would have predicted that a year ago. I don't think anybody would have predicted that a year ago, right? No, not, not at all. And... Scheduling of this interview and the time of this interview is, is perfect because all of the energy companies have been reporting their profitability for 2022. In Texas, we just started another legislative session, and so everybody's taking a snapshot of where the state of Texas is. We have a huge budget uh, financial surplus, principally due to intense oil and gas production in Texas over the last 12 months. Is that related at all to the Ukraine war? Well, I, I didn't want to give a shout out to Vladimir, but he probably <laughs> deserves, um, he probably deserves uh, in a strange way. And unfortunately for the Ukrainians, he deserves some of the credit. And so, yeah, in reality, uh, he, that's been a huge factor. But I think that's also helped us and helped the industry anyway and helped the state of Texas play a large role in uh, the export of uh, hydrocarbons to Europe and to places that Germany and other places that have depended so heavily on Russia. 
particularly for natural gas supply. And so you see a huge uptick, uh, in particular, with liquefied natural gas. And there's some really interesting developments in that part of the business, uh, principally down in Corpus Christi, Texas. Did you say liquefied natural gas? Liquefied natural gas. And so it's where what we saw over the last several years with where all the major pipeline companies, many of them were building large natural gas pipelines mm-hmm. from West Texas down to the Gulf Coast, uh, primarily headed to the Corpus Christi area. And so they basically freeze the gas, they put them on natural gas, and they transport it through special uh, vessels uh, across the seas and oceans, and they'll land somewhere uh, at some port in Europe, and they have facilities in Europe that reverse the process, uh, oh. and they're able to deliver large volumes of natural gas. If you ever get a chance, the company that's really kind of leading that is a company called Chenier, and they're doing really, really well. Is it more cost-effective to transport it that way? Is it safer? Is it? Yes, they they couldn't find any right-of-way agents that were willing to uh, locate pipelines across the <laughs> Atlantic. Uh, and so, so just uh, all kidding aside, all physically, that's the most economical way huh. uh, to do that. On the crude oil side, I'm happy to report, because a client of mine was the beneficiary of this, the federal government approved in December uh, a permit to build an offshore crude oil terminal. It'll be about 50, maybe 60 miles offshore at Freeport, Texas. And what that would involve is a pipeline. There'd be, part of it would be onshore, part of it would be offshore that they would move crude oil to this offshore terminal facility and what they call very large crude carriers, VLCCs, instead of having to come into the Houston ship channel or any other ship channel, uh, which is dangerous for some of these large carriers, they would just pull up alongside of this terminal and load up a bunch of crude and take it anywhere they want to in the world. Hmm. And despite what I said about national energy policy a year ago, and despite a lot of protest and objection from uh, impacted landowners, and organized opposition groups, the United States government, through the appropriate federal agency, approved the permit in December to allow that to go forward. Tom, I'd, I'd like to back up a couple of steps, and I've got two very how we'll call them layman questions for you. Okay. And, and any of your buddies in the industry who are listening to this are going to roll their eyes, but number one, export of hydrocarbons. Can you tell me in layman's terms what you mean by that? Yeah. So physically it just means taking domestic oil and gas production and transporting it to foreign countries as the reverse would be importing you know, bringing something in, But the significance of it, the legal significance of it, is that for so long, our national policy was to discourage the export of domestic natural resources. But due to the success of the oil and gas business, principally through horizontal drilling, directional drilling, there's a surplus of natural resources in the United States, particularly 
in the hydrocarbon area. So we're, the country is in a position, this coincides with you know, things that we talked about earlier, in terms of what's happening in Europe and a lot of the uncertainties in energy and security in Europe. <clears throat> we're in a position to actually influence and help people in other parts of the world. Well, that okay, you foresaw my second question. Back home in Virginia, gas is back above three fifty a gallon, and there's oil is directly related to national security, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, it 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 affects the economy in every which way you can possibly imagine. It affects politics. They're still talking about the price of gas when Trump left office versus now. I, I, I still can't get my head around, other than it's profitable for the oil companies, why we would export it. Why would we send a drop of this overseas unless it's to help a war effort somewhere? Well, I think, yeah, I think there's mutual benefit. Obviously, the major oil and gas companies are in the business of making profit and returning value to their shareholders and their investors. And if they're holding on to surplus supplies of crude or natural gas, they need to monetize that, and liquidate it. And the best way to do it is to sell it and move it. Right. And there happens to be a global demand for it, right? Sure. Go back to COVID when the world shut down and the domestic oil and gas industry suffered through, I believe it got as low as minus $30 a barrel prices. Minus $30 a barrel for crude, okay? That's because all of us were doing exactly what we're doing right now. We were sitting down someplace, (laughs) and we weren't driving someplace, right? We weren't going anywhere. We were country, the world, and in some places the world, more so the United States. We were shut down. So we come from that, which frankly was just a couple of years ago. Think about how far they come. You know, the company, the company several years ago were laying people off, significant layoffs. I've always said nobody really cares about layoffs in the energy industry unless you have a loved one or a friend who works in the energy industry. That means you're probably living or know somebody that lives in an oil and gas producing state. I have family that work in the oil and gas business. I, as an attorney, help service the oil and gas industry. So it means a lot to us, my family. But one thing that gets lost in this discussion is how much risk these companies take to produce oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's a dangerous process. The, the idea of drilling a hole in the ground, high pressure, and moving whatever is down there under the pressure of compacted rock and moving it up, and transporting it somewhere, is a very high-risk proposition. And really through innovation, technology, um, I think I talked about this last year, that Kristen really started in your backyard in the Barnett Shale, but almost 20 years ago. It was that uh, technology that uh, put the country where it is today, with the ability to engage in cost-efficient oil and gas production. If you've looked at the price of crude lately, it has been stabilized around $74 to maybe $80 a barrel. Somehow it's stabilized, and that's great. At that price, a lot of companies, majors and independents, can afford to participate in oil and gas production. 
Well, I don't see it at the pump in my part of the country. It might have stabilized, but I have a feeling that right. Exxon is holding on to a few more of those profits. How much oil is left? Do we have to worry about this in our lifetime? You know, you don't hear much about that anymore. And that's a whole separate topic. It used to be this uh, idea of what they call peak oil, P-E-A-K. Mm-hmm. When will we get the point, kind of the tipping point, where uh, when you look at all the oil and gas reserves, domestically or globally, just physically, how much, at least on the crude side, how much oil is left? And there's projections all over the map. Most of those projections are outside of my anticipated lifespan, so I don't worry about them (laughs) too much. Um, The natural gas side is a lot more plentiful. Uh, You you don't hear about that issue. What's funny is, I hadn't thought about that question in a long time, Nobody's really talking about when we might run out of crude. What, the, what they were talking about a year ago is when can we stop depending on crude oil, mm-hmm. regardless of how much supply is left. And, and that's what I think is, is really amazing is how far we've come in 12 months. I don't think I was very overly specific in my comments a year ago. I wasn't trying to cast blame or fault at anybody, but just kind of calling it the way it was. And if you look back over the 12, last, past 12 months, and I've heard this from different sources, uh, reliable sources, the current administration has issued more federal drilling permits despite its announced stance being against fossil fuel production than the prior maybe two or three administrations, Trump, mm-hmm. Obama, George W. Bush, now, apparently, there's some restrictions that go with the drilling permits, but you remember, they, this administration was talking about banning drilling on federal lands, and I just heard recently that somebody looked at the number of permits granted, and they're like, wait a second, You've done more than uh, several of the past presidents. So I'm not sure, not sure what all of that means. I don't know if that's current administration sort of responding to global demand and wartime issues over Ukraine, but it's happening. And like I said, it, the majors have reported record profits. We just had in Houston the 30th annual NATE conference, which is the North American Prospect Expo. These are all the independent, the smaller oil and gas companies. They get together with landmen, geologists, a lot of banks, financial institutions, and other entities that loan money to the oil and gas business, they're very bullish about 2023, as are the majors. And by that, I mean they're announcing capital expenditure budgets where they're going to invest in themselves. And I'm hearing anecdotally that large financial institutions and smaller ones are going to start loaning money to the energy industry Hmm. One time, it was almost politically incorrect to loan money to support the development of oil and gas. And so I'm happy to see that that has eroded somewhat and that you're going to get a capital infusion into the business, which will just keep it going in the right direction. Well, you said, I know you've mentioned to us that, and I'm wondering if this is kind of shifting at this point, you've mentioned to us that for the last couple of years, National energy policy seeks to eliminate the pipeline industry. 
Is that still going on? Is that shifting with these all these approvals and with the funding? Yeah, you won't see it in in the news as much as you used to. Of course, when President Biden took office, one of the first things he did was terminate Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. That was the big so-called tar sands pipeline that was going to move crude oil from Canada into the United States. That made a big splash. And because symbolically represented, maybe that was probably the single largest act he could take to show how opposed he was to pipeline development. And that continues, I think, to be the policy of the country in terms of interstate pipelines, which the federal government has jurisdiction over. They're taking a harder look at it. We'll talk a little bit about environmental justice and how that plays into it. But there's just a lot more regulatory oversight by the federal government, which means that it's going to be harder to get your permits. And that's going to discourage companies from wanting to take on that risk. And so I think it continues. It just, you just don't hear about it as much uh, as we did maybe a year ago. I wonder, and again, your buddies may roll their eyes at me, but I wonder if when we're talking about oil, crude oil, and we're talking about, or gas, and pipelines, although they're very interrelated, we're talking about sometimes separate policies, and you can go a little easier on one, but I I don't know that anybody's willing to build more pipelines now than they were a year ago. It seems like that's as hot a topic as ever, or you see public or the politicians lightening their stance on building new pipelines. No, I think think you're right about that, and and just... Factually, the way it's played out over the last several years, and particularly after COVID, you didn't hear a lot about new crude oil pipelines being built, anything you were hearing about natural gas. That has always been viewed as sort of the, call it sort of the bridge hydrocarbon product that will take our society as we know, know it and move it from being hydrocarbon dependent and move on to electricity, solar, wind, et cetera. And it, natural gas has always been looked upon more favorably than crude oil. Well, we said crude oil spills, natural gas explodes, uh, but everybody reads about rivers and creeks and what have you being contaminated when there's a spill. Uh, I think there was a, a breach. Uh, the industry likes to call them a breach. They don't call it a damaged pipeline or a, or a spill. They call it a breach. Sometimes it's third parties. In fact, if you look at most of the pipeline incidents that have happened around the country and here in Texas, because uh, my clients get accused of it all the time, most of those incidents are caused by third parties. Somebody with a backhoe, mm. somebody with a shovel. Some, you know, Don't that's why you have the whole call before you dig. You're supposed to call before you dig or eight one one. I think isn't it? I think that's the number. And don't, uh, don't call nine one one. I think you call eight. I think my my daughter has a T shirt that says "Call before you dig." I think call before you dig. Now you better because not but maybe the will be a bad call that you would have had the chance to make. But, right. uh, yeah. So no, but there's definitely a favoritism. T. Boone Pickens, you may recall, was mm-hmm. real big, and you know, he's a Texas legend. Maybe also Oklahoma State legend. He was a big proponent of natural gas and wanted to push push natural gas uh, vehicles, et cetera, and it, it just never really took off, although there are 
a lot of natural gas fueled vehicles on the road. You see mostly buses and large transportation vehicles. So, that, Tom, just kind of as an aside, they're planning this enormous wind farm near where I come from off the coast, off the East Coast. As a matter of fact, one of my law partners is going to speak at a symposium regarding this planned wind farm here coming up. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective as an oil and gas guy, what effect will these planned wind farms have on the industry, if at all? Will it do anything to allay the demand in the oil and gas industry, or is it something completely different? Or do you know? I think it's completely. I think it's completely different, completely unrelated. Wind farms are going to ge- generate electricity. Right. Going to generate power. Will they help with motor vehicles, electric vehicles, electric vehicles? Absolutely. I mean, anything that dumps more power into the grid is great for electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, we talked about that a little bit last year. I think those are gaining uh, attraction. I don't I haven't looked at numbers. I don't know how many people are buying them. I'm kind of intrigued a little bit mm-hmm. by them. I think last year I may have said I wouldn't have touched them. My right. clients would fire me. Right. But I'm kind of intrigued. I think Tesla just announced a uh, at least a prototype of an electric pickup truck. I saw that. And put out a photograph of it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It really is beautiful. I was reading about our NAEP conference last week here in Houston, and they said Ford had an electric pickup truck, and it was in the back. We have a large convention center here in Houston called George R. Brown, and it was back in the corner, and nobody was going to look at it. But up front, they had a Ford, I think, F-150 gasoline-fueled pickup truck, and it was the talk of the town. It was people were... I think they were selling raffle tickets and you could win the tickets. No way. Well, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I know Bucky's is not like a microcosm of the entire world, but we just stopped at a Bucky's on the way back from ALICLE and we were taken aback at how many Tesla charging stations there were. I mean, it was like there wasn't two or three, there was a whole row. There was tons right. of them and, they, and a lot of them were occupied. So I thought that was interesting. Well, let me go back and try to bring my point home because it, it, I think I came off as looking pretty ignorant there, but if you, if these wind farms or these alternative energy sources are not going to reduce the demand on oil in particular, then they're not going to reduce carbon emissions. So that's right. And I think that's, I think that's what people are, are realizing. It's just an alternative source for generating electric power. Right. And that's, I mean, it has a lot of great value, but it's not going to create all the household and consumer goods that oil and gas, particularly oil, is used to make. Anything that's plastic, I think I've seen statistics. It's like 90% of what every person uses or touches every day was created because of crude oil production. Wow. You mentioned the, the conference in Austin. I wanted to touch on that because, as you all know, I was in Austin last week, mm-hmm. and I'm just crushed that I wasn't able to spend time with you guys there. Uh, I, owe you, I owe you a dinner, <laughs> um, and I heard a rumor, and maybe you can confirm this, that next year's conference is in New Orleans. Nola. Is that right? It's That's right. in NOLA. That's right. They just announced it. So, you know... I think I mentioned this before, but I'm an LSU dad, but more importantly, I'm an LSU father-in-law. I have a mm-hmm. beautiful and brilliant daughter-in-law who my son met at LSU. 
more importantly, she's a native of New Orleans. Oh, wow. And so I know New Orleans really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to make that dinner up to you guys next year in New Orleans. Well, Tom, no I can tell you, we've talked about the last time you took us to dinner ad nauseum. We went to a place called, was it Steak 44? Yeah. In Scottsdale. In Scottsdale. In Scottsdale. Yeah. One of my favorite meals of my entire life. Like at least top five, if not the very favorite. It was so much fun. Everything that I put in my mouth was delicious and fancy. And we did have some Pappy. I mean, that didn't hurt. We did have a couple glasses of Pappy Van Winkle. That was excellent. Anyway, so listen, I'm never going to turn down a dinner invite from you. I can tell you that. All right. (laughs) I'm excited about it. I I really look forward to it. And like I said, I've spent a lot of time in New Orleans over the last several years. Can't wait to spend a night with guys there yeah we we certainly missed you but we're glad you could still join us for for this episode because we were really excited to touch base on a lot of this stuff this episode of infrastructure junkies is proudly brought to you by my company blackbird right-of-way we specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide from one parcel to 100 let blackbird handle your relocation challenges you can find out more about us at our website it's blackbirdrow.com that's blackbirdrow.com. Let's turn the discussion a little bit to this other thing called environmental justice, which is actually closely related to what we're already discussing. And I want to start this discussion by saying that I was in an interview with a potential client company, and, and it was a panel three or four of our attorneys showed up and there were a panel of five or six, four or five of them. And they had the normal questions about your qualifications, your abilities, your commitment to the industry. And then one of the guys says, well, what's your position on environmental justice? And I said, what? I said, I mean, I'm all for it. Can <laughs> uh, I tell you more not about guilty. education? <laughs> yeah, not guilty. Guilty. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we talked a little bit about this before. I, Environmental justice. If you want to learn something about it, as I have, I've had to learn about it kind of the hard way because I've been involved in a number of different projects where what they call EJ, they call it in short EJ, EJ, EJ factors. Of course, the public policy behind it being that um, through principally starting at the federal government and then trickling down to state and local government on public improvement projects. And also private, some private sector development, things like that, that require governmental approval, regulatory approval. This policy encourages the consideration of the impact of those projects on people of color, low-income neighborhoods, tribal nations, indigenous, other indigenous people. We want to make sure that there isn't a disproportionate impact on those important stakeholders who historically, those stakeholder groups historically have not participated in the common in the public commentary, in the dialogue about whether or not projects, plan projects should go forward as proposed, or if there should be modifications to them to minimize the impact on those groups. I was surprised to learn that environmental justice in one form or another has existed in national policymaking since 1992. President Clinton was in the White House. 
I think we need FERC to cover. It's been around over three decades. It has never, in my experience, it has never been as visible and as controversial as it is now under the current administration. And so, um, if you want to learn something about it, first place I would encourage you to go is go to the EPA's website. They have a whole section dedicated uh, on their website to environmental justice. They have an office that's dedicated to the administration and enforcement of environmental justice uh, rules and regulations, not just within the EPA, but across all federal agencies. And they have a timeline on there about how EJ has evolved over time. And it won't surprise you to know that there has been more activity around environmental justice during Democratic presidential administrations. So when you look at the timeline, there's all kinds of, you know, it's kind of timelines that we use a trial where you say on this date, somebody signed the contract and on this date, another bubble that pops up, this is when they breach. Well, so there'll be all this, you can see all the activity over time, and it's always in four or eight year increments. And it's uh, <laughs> coincidence. A lot during Clinton, actually under George W. Bush, a fair amount of policy making. I don't know how much policies were implemented, but there was a lot of discussion around it. And then after George W., then you had President Obama, a lot of activity, and then the timeline actually kind of. I think this may just be an EPA thing, but it just kind of ends. As, Donald, as President Trump came in. But here we are with President Biden, very actively enforced. I've experienced it in several projects, uh, in some instances, uh, infrastructure projects, in, in several instances, and in part due to President Biden's only been in office for just over two years. And so, as you know, Dave, from highway projects, they uh, last forever. They're announced. Yeah. 20 years ago, and then that'll get all the funding, and then eventually it happens, and then it starts going. And in Houston, in the Houston area, our Interstate 45, which runs from Houston up to Dallas and beyond, I think, but not much beyond, been the subject of a widening. It needed to be widened for decades, particularly as it comes into town. And I've always said, when you're widening a highway that goes through the fourth largest city in the country, you are necessarily going to impact inner city neighborhoods. Right? I mean, there's just no way to avoid it. And sure enough, and I was representing a, a client actually on the landowner side, very significant landowner client who uh, was impacted by the project. And out of the blue, in some respects, our local county filed a lawsuit to challenge the environmental findings because that's where EJ comes up. Environmental justice factors are supposed to be considered as part of the environmental review, the environmental assessment, you know, the things that lead to a record of decision, right? Right. I had never seen that before. I think those factors have always been there, but I don't think anybody was paying as close attention to them as, as they are now. And so I believe the, at least the environmental assessment had been issued and county sued. I mean, the city stepped in, and I don't know if they joined the lawsuit, but they certainly opposed it for failing to consider the impact of the project on inner-city neighborhoods, mostly involving people of color, Hispanic, uh, African-American. And uh, 
What that did to my client was I had spent two years working on a memorandum of understanding with our highway department. We talked about, my, my client wasn't opposed to it, but they were concerned about how it was going to impact their use of their land over the long haul. And the construction process can last six or seven years, right? What, what are you going to do during that six or seven year process? We spent two years just trying to negotiate what that process would look like. And we also were talking about what happens to, once you they were going to decommission some existing highway overpasses and things, the state would end up with surplus land. My client happens to be a public entity, which puts them first in line to acquire surplus land. So we were really interested in surplus land. So we had this beautiful agreement worked out in principle. And uh, at about that time, the county sued and then the Department of Transportation, through Secretary Buttigieg, steps in, writes a letter, and says, no more land acquisition. We actually shut down the I've never seen this before. Shut down the land acquisition process uh-huh. that TxDOT was engaged in. TxDOT has to stop because it's a federally funded project. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the Department of Transportation is saying, don't go out and acquire any more land thinking that we're going to reimburse you or that we're going to pay for it. And so that project sat and almost died on the vine, I want to say, for a year, year and a half. My client asked me to put my pencil down, and that's what I told the attorney representing the state. I'm like, my client's not going to pay me to negotiate with you if this project's not going to spin it on wheel. And they tell me, oh, no, Textile has never had a project canceled, terminated. And... Then that same attorney called me about a year later and said, I want to apologize to you. I didn't realize this was happening. But it, so that shows you. I mean, you're talking about people that work in for the state on highway projects all around the state of Texas, never experienced anything like this. The good news is, as in all litigation, most of it, they worked out an agreement, they settled it, and the project's going to go forward. But I've seen that with pipeline projects. Mm-hmm. I've seen that with another public improvement project where environmental justice factors really weren't relevant, but property owner whose business, whose customers tended to be lower income, lower income demographic groups, raised environmental justice factors to say, wait a second, don't take my land, don't take my business because it's going to have a disproportionate effect principally on my customers who are from lower-income families. That, in my opinion, was an abuse of environmental justice arguments. Didn't go anywhere, failed, but just kind of shows you the extent to which those factors can be invoked, uh, and they will be studied, and they will be analyzed. Well, anytime we come up with something in the right-of-way industry where we're being better, we're being better to people who are impacted, whether it's because we got the Uniform Act, way to go us, got the Uniform Act, that's great. Or whether we start paying more attention to historical things and grave sites and, oh my gosh, is there, you know, Indian artifacts here? That can be abused. I heard stories of people like throwing an arrowhead out in the right of way. And now we're talking about environmental justice issues that it sounds like can also be manipulated in that way. Do you think this is new, the abuse of this? I think the potential for abuse is there. And the example that you used with the Native American artifacts, it kind of illustrates a thought that I had recently. In Texas, under our Texas Constitution, 
and you've heard this from other guests of yours, you know, we have an obligation, it's a state law taking, state law governed taking. We have to pay for whatever we're taking. And constitutionally, we're obligated, or my client is obligated to pay for the impact on any remaining acre, right? If it's a partial taking. And that's fine. Everybody understand the, understands those rules. We figure out what the land is worth and we figure out if there's some diminution in value caused to the remainder. The thing about environmental justice, it's not about the land taken. It's not about the remainder. It's about all the neighbors, mm-hmm. right? It's about everybody else who's not directly impacted by the taking. Mm. And is there a cost associated with that? I mean, are you having to pay them? No, you know, Dave, I think you do uh, have done, and Christian, you probably have been around this too. You hear this with electric, high voltage transmission lines, electric yep. transmission lines. Yep. You run it through somebody's land, and you're going to pay them for you know whatever they're entitled, or you're going to certainly offer to them what they're entitled. But then you always hear from the neighbor who says, well, wait a second. It's not on my land, but I have to look at it. When I go out on my back porch and have a cup of coffee, I have to look at this. I should be compensated for that. Well, and of course, they don't get compensated for that. Oftentimes, I think I told the story before, oftentimes those neighboring landowners, when they find out how much you paid their neighbor, say, why didn't you cross my land? <laughs> right. right? And you should have just crossed my land because I have to look at it anyway. May as well get right? paid for it. So, right, you might as well get paid for it. So, the EJ issues that we're talking about, it's really interesting. It's about the consideration, maybe at least in a qualitative sense, the impact of your project, not on directly impacted landowners, but on other people. And I believe there is a cost associated with that. It has nothing to do with eminent domain valuation methods that we typically use, but there is. There's an impact to the project timing, the project management, the overall project cost. Think about all of the different companies that are providing engineering and design services that sure the contracts set up for construction and all the things that go into major infrastructure projects. All of those contracts get put on hold while the environmental justice factors are considered. And I'm not saying those factors aren't important. I'm just saying that card is being played now, and you need to be aware of it. If you're in right-of-way or land acquisition, you're in the land group of a project or Kristen and Uniform Relocation Act, and you're going to interface with the landowner, you better be up to to snuff on environmental justice issues. And I hear you, and Kristen used the word abuse. I would probably characterize it as leverage. This, sure. These environmental justice factors may be leveraged by certain interests or certain groups to be compensated. But what I want to understand is I did a presentation a number of years ago about the effect on historic sites. And it turns out you've got to do a, what they call a, what we call a Section 106 review on every project to specifically determine how it might affect historic sites or historic artifacts or things like that. And what I found interesting was that it's really a process, and I think environmental justice might be part of this, but it's really a process which seeks consensus. You don't necessarily need approval from those being affected, and it's not necessarily an issue of compensation, but what they're wanting to show is that it was identified, it was considered, 
and then those who might be affected or might be hurt or offended by the project were consulted and heard. Exactly. That's a good way to summarize it, Dave. And so my question Uh, is, is this environmental justice, is this seeking to right past wrongs, avoid future wrongs, or are we really just giving people who've been historically disenfranchised a new voice? I think it's more the last two factors Mm -hmm. you identified, and particularly in the EPA speaks to this, the initiatives that they have in place to give some of these stakeholder groups that typically not had a voice, just educate them how to get involved in the process. And they're devoting money, time, energy to, first of all, giving people notice of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has a laptop or a computer, right. <laughs> right? Not everybody has a smartphone or an Apple Watch. I don't have an Apple Watch. They don't necessarily live the same lifestyles that other people do. And they don't even know what's going on, right? And somebody has to tell them, how do you do that? So through community centers and churches and things like that, probably before people gather, right? And get the word out, and then you educate them on how to provide input and comment. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that their comments are going to dictate the outcome of the process, but at least they got to participate in the process, and that's what's most important. Well, I was on a project years ago, and it was for a substation. And it was kind of smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood. They took out like a neighborhood block. And so the people on the other side of the street were coming to all the meetings and saying, what the hell, man? Like I look at my neighbor's house now and then we look at a substation and there was no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, they would say, well, there's going to be some landscaping. It'll be fine. But there was a little bit of a conversation and there were some plans that were changed a bit to make it a little bit more aesthetically pleasing to the neighbors. And I think that's the only right. time I can think of anything like that where there was a conversation and a change. They weren't compensated, but the entity did make some changes to make it not look like a chain link fence with the bush in front of it. And it was right. everybody was a little more satisfied than I was anticipating they would be at the beginning of those. Was that in the North Texas? Was that the North Texas area? It sure was. <laughs> Tom. Some of your clients put compressor stations and other things in the <laughs> in the middle of really nice neighborhoods that I don't really think were the uh, intended beneficiaries of environmental justice. Probably not. Yeah. You characterized this environmental injustice, environmental justice concept or initiatives or whatever is sometimes being controversial. Now, hear me out. We, you and I, and Kristen, we're all very familiar with the disparate impacts that uh, infrastructure projects have had on different communities throughout American history. And it started before our country was even a country. You know, you could say it started with George Washington. We did an episode with um, Howard uh, Mansfield who told us about Washington draining the dismal swamp, and there's nothing anybody could do about it. There was no just compensation Mm -hmm. for that. And it went on through the Dawes Act, taking property from Indians and effects on African-American. We took land away from African-American communities when we, the country, wanted it. And so I think there's a lot of good in putting a spotlight on this and some would even argue there's not even enough being done, but what's controversial about it? Well, what I've experienced is if you want to have a debate about whether or not a particular situation, environmental justice factors should impact the design, the route, the alignment, whatever it is you're building, highway, railroad, 
electric transmission line. It's typically linear projects, but it, it can also be fee takings like landfills. Landfill. Think about where you locate a landfill mm-hmm. in a community, right? And typically they're not they're not located next to the really nice neighborhood with Kristen's clients with natural gas compressor stations that were beautifully landscaped. Um, typically not put there, right? They're, but um, um, so once there is public debate about it, this is the term that I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable. There's a fine line between having sort of an intellectual discussion about environmental justice factors and running the, the risk of being called what they call environmental racism, right? And the R word has a tendency, has a very deterrent effect on people's willingness to have a debate, a healthy debate about those factors. And that's when it gets controversial. Look, Dave, I mean, Kristen, same thing. I mean, we all deal with people who don't want their land taken, who don't want their land impacted. They have every right to be emotional about what's happening. And it's those settings where folks have become maybe more emotional than rational, and understandably so. That's what makes it controversial. Is somebody coined the phrase environmental racism and you see that called out. Uh, I will tell you in my experience on my own projects, I've never seen anybody use that term. I've seen everybody play it above board and really try and you can use the existing laws and regulations to give yourself as much protection as you're entitled to under applicable federal law. And that's where the dialogue should stay. It doesn't always stay at that level. Well, I got to tell you, Tom, if that's not a great thought-provoking and compelling concept to end on, then there's not going to be one with this show. (laughs) What a way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. This has been fascinating as usual. I've, feel like I've learned a lot and I've been enriched. Me too. Thanks, Tom. It's always good to see you. Thank you very much, guys. Look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. Yes, sir. We'll see you in a year. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. Please check out our new website at infrastructurejunkies.com. That's infrastructurejunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're even on TikTok. You can find us anywhere. Thanks for listening.